0: I made a new friend the other day when listener Lila Ansbacher, who was born at Michael Reese Hospital here in Chicago in 1926, reached out. Lila moved away many years ago, but still considers herself a Chicagoan. And during a delightful phone call, she shared with me some great stories that I need to do some looking into for possible future episodes. But for now, Lila, today's episode is for you. It was the first invasion of the U.S. mainland since the War of 1812. In 1942, when German submarines loaded with explosives landed on the shores of the East Coast during World War II, few would have guessed one of the men on board was a kid from Chicago's north side. This is the story of Herbert Haupt, Chicago's World War II Nazi spy. I'm Tommy Henry, host of the Chicago History Podcast. Herbert Hans Haupt was born in 1919 in Stettin, Germany. In 1923, Hopp's father moved to America, settling in Chicago, which had long had a large German population. Not long after, young Herbert and his mother joined him. And by the age of 10, Herbert Haupt had become an American citizen when his father was naturalized. Growing up, Hopped attended Waters Elementary School on Wilson Avenue near Campbell in the Lincoln Square neighborhood, eventually attending Amundsen High School at Damon and Foster before transferring to Lane Tech High School at Western and Addison. While at Lane Tech, Hopped was a cadet in the ROTC but left school before getting his high school diploma. Haupt got a job at the Simpson Optical Company at 3200 West Carroll near Garfield Park that made parts for the Norden bombsight, key to providing U.S. aircraft with unparalleled accuracy, and started dating a young widow named Gerda Melind. In June of 1941, Hopped abruptly left Chicago for a trip with a friend named Wolfgang Wergen —cool name on a trip to Mexico— they hadn't taken the time to get U.S. passports before they left, but as they were both German-born, they were able to get German passports in Mexico City. They eventually sailed to Japan, where they found work on a German merchant ship headed to France while they were there. December 7, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. entered World War II. Four days later, Nazi Germany declared war on the U.S., Now stranded in Europe, Haupt went to stay at his grandmother's house, becoming more and more homesick with each passing day. While in Germany, Herbert Haupt caught the attention of the Abwehr, Germany's secret service. They promised him a trip back to America if he'd be willing to help them out with a few things. Those things included a three-week intensive course at their sabotage school. Referred to as Operation Pastorius, the men would be the first in what was expected to be many efforts by the Germans to infiltrate American sites to disrupt U.S. production. Their objective, the eight were told, was to sabotage industries and supply routes crucial to the war effort, including those involved in aluminum and magnesium production. Three of the plants of the Aluminum Company of America at Alcoa, Tennessee, East St. Louis, Illinois and Messina, New York were of importance as were rail lines. They were also told to destroy waterways and water filtration plants. The saboteurs were provided with fake IDs and other documentation and nearly $170,000 in US currency, roughly 2.8 million in today's money, to accomplish their mission. In the early hours of June 13, 1942, a German submarine carrying four of the saboteurs edged within sight of the beach at Amagansett, Long Island, approximately 100 miles from New York City. George John Dash, 39, was chosen to lead the first team. He was a smooth talker who had served in the German Army during World War I then emigrated to America, where he found work as a waiter, living in the U.S. for 19 years before heading back to Germany in 1939 when war broke out. The men rode the rest of the way on rubber rafts. They wore German uniforms, later explained, because if they were captured, they would be treated as prisoners of war and not shot as spies, but then changed into civilian clothes upon reaching the shore. The men hid four large cases containing TNT, bombs made to resemble coal, timing devices, detonators, fuses, pencil bombs, and delayed action bombs in the hole in the sand. While on the shore, the saboteurs were startled by a 21-year-old Coast Guard sentry named John Cullen. Attempting to explain who they were and why they were there, George Dash, the leader of the group, tried to convince Cullen that the men were just lost fishermen. Sensing Cullen wasn't falling for the lost fishermen story, Dash bribed him with $260. Cullen wished them well and turned away to head back to his station, immediately turning in the bribe and telling his supervisor about the incident. The group of Germans on Long Island were supposed to bring their German uniforms back to the submarine, but instead bury them with bomb-making supplies, one of the many things that would prove their undoing. The saboteurs, having left on foot, were gone when Coast Guardsman Cullen and his fellow guardsmen returned to the beach to investigate. They quickly found the disturbed area in the ground, and after some digging, found the explosives and a duffel bag with the German uniforms. The FBI was alerted, but really had very little in the way of leads to investigate. Here is one of the many ways this story has a few turns. The day after the Long Island landing, leader George Dash confided to fellow saboteur Peter Berger that he was going to turn himself in, and Berger said he would do the same. Dash phoned the FBI explaining he had information about a plot by German saboteurs on American soil, Not surprisingly, the FBI didn't take his call seriously at first, as it sounded like something out of a spy novel. The person who took that call was also not aware of the Long Island beach landing. Many believe Dash got spooked by the run in with Coast Guard sentry John Cullen and feared he'd be caught. Dash claimed it was always his intention to foil the plot, expecting to be praised by the American government and possibly get a reward and even a job as a double agent. When the FBI brought Dash in, he gave them all the details of their plot, naming his co-conspirators, showing them the money he still had from the trip, and even the handkerchiefs with messages written on them in invisible ink. Spy novel indeed. The second quartet, including Chicago's Herbert Haupt, landed near Ponte Vedra, Florida, about 22 miles from Jacksonville, Florida, on June 17th. That team buried their explosives without incident, traveled to Jacksonville, and went their separate ways by train, planning to meet up again on the 4th of July. Herbert Hopped returned to Chicago on Friday, June 19th. He first went to the home of his aunt and uncle, Lucille and Walter Fraling, at 3643 North Whipple Street. That night at dinner with his parents and the Frailings at the table, he told the adults about returning to the U.S. on a submarine. While he may not have laid out his entire German adventure and plans... He left behind $15,000, money intended to be used for sabotage efforts, in a zipper bag with his aunt and uncle for safekeeping. Hopped returned to his parents' house on the third floor at 2234 North Fremont Street near DePaul University and left behind an envelope containing $3,600 there. Herbert also visited his traveling companion Wolfgang Worgen's parents on the south side telling them much more about his time in Germany than he told his parents or his aunt and uncle. Hupp's sweetheart, Gerda Melind was surprised to see Herbert as she hadn't heard from him in almost a year. She asked Hupp what he planned to do now that he was back. Hupp said he hoped to get his job at the Simpson Optical Company again. Herbert Hopp spent the next week and a half around Chicago making plans to marry Gerda and spending time with his family. What he didn't know was that the FBI was keeping tabs on him. From everything I've read about his actions back in Chicago, there was very little to suggest he planned to meet up with his co-conspirators to continue their plot. But still... On July 27th, Herbert Hopp was driving down Webster near the L when he was cut off and surrounded by FBI agents who took him into custody. All eight of the saboteurs had been rounded up. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was in New York to confidently announce all involved with the plot were captured, quote, "...we've caught the whole crowd," he said. Hoover made no mention of the role of the Long Island's Coast Guard in uncovering the saboteurs, Nor did he mention George Dash calling the FBI, then traveling to Washington directly to give them all the details. To anyone listening to J. Edgar Hoover, his FBI agents and those agents alone worked tirelessly to bring these men to justice. We'll be right back. Hey, if you're enjoying this story, make sure you check out episode 213 of this podcast about the capture of the U-505 German submarine during World War II, which is on display at Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. And as always, thanks for listening. On the advice of the War Department, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt ordered the trial to be held in secret by a military commission tribunal made up of seven army generals operating only under the laws of war, which would only require a two-thirds vote. Less than two weeks after their capture, the trial of the aid saboteurs began on July 8, 1942. Reporters were not allowed in the courtroom, and everyone in the courtroom was sworn to secrecy. Although the aid had signed confessions They pleaded not guilty, hopeful they might avoid the death penalty. At the conclusion of the 19-day trial, guilty verdicts came down for all, and on August 8, 1942, Herbert Haupt and five other saboteurs were to be executed in Washington via the electric chair. The United Press reported that three American soldiers and a British sailor showed up at the jail shortly before the execution— offering themselves as a firing squad to, quote, save the government some electricity, end quote. Preparing for his execution, Haupt allegedly asked for a message to be given to his father that read, Try not to take this too hard. I have brought nothing but grief to all my friends and relatives who did nothing wrong. My last thoughts will be of mother. The oldest man executed that day was 35, the youngest, and the only U.S. citizen, Herbert Hans Hopp, was just 22. For the record, many legal scholars and historians that have written about this case and the trial agree that it was done in haste. And as author Pierce O'Donnell wrote in his 2004 book, In Time of War, Hitler's Terrorist Attack on America, as a boost to wartime morale and perhaps a warning to Hitler. As for the remaining two saboteurs, George Dash and Peter Berger, Dash was given a 30-year sentence and Berger received life in prison. Prior to the trial, Dash was told by the FBI that he would receive a presidential pardon once the case died down and that the longest he would have to serve would be six months. Six years later, Dash and Berger were quietly released and quickly deported back to Germany. Hopp's parents, along with Herbert Hopp's uncle and aunt, Walter and Lucille Frayling, and Mr. and Mrs. Otto Wergen, friends of the Hopp's family and parents of Herbert's friend Wolfgang, were tried for treason beginning in late October of 1942 for aiding the German Reich by assisting Herbert Hopp. The men, according to the Time magazine article, were pale, the women red-eyed from weeping. In a federal court in November of 1942, a 23-page statement that Herbert's mother, Erna Haupt, made to FBI agents revealed that when Herbert returned, he told her he had gone to Germany. He returned on a submarine. That Erna bought Herbert a car. This was important as the prosecution had established Herbert Haupt was to provide a car for his group of saboteurs. Herbert also told his mom that he had hidden money in the family's home in Chicago, part of the $170,000 the saboteurs were given for their mission. Erna Hopp's statement went on to say, I had no idea that he, Herbert, had been trained to destroy bridges and to commit other acts of sabotage. Called to the witness stand was Ernest Peter Berger, one of the two saboteurs who turned on the six others to avoid execution. Wearing a gray suit with his thick brown hair slicked back slightly, he appeared courteous and cooperative, that is, until he was asked if he had been promised immunity for testifying for the U.S. Berger snapped, quote, I may remind you that you are speaking to a German soldier. The United States government respected me by not even offering me any promises, whatever. I expect the same from you, sir. End quote. The three men, Hopped, Worgen, and Freiling, were sentenced to death, and the three women to 25-year prison terms and $25,000 fines. Their convictions were later overturned by the United States Circuit Court of Appeals, with retrials ordered. Held in prison since July of 1942, the 1944 second trials for five members of the group brought a different result, with Otto Wergen and Walter Fraling sentenced to five-year prison terms and the wives being set free. Herbert Hopp's mother, Erna, consented to denaturalization proceedings to strip her of her citizenship and was later deported in 1946. At Hans Max Hopp's second trial, he was sentenced to life in prison. That was later commuted, and he was deported to Germany in 1957. Gerda Stuckman Melind, the young widow who thought she found love with Herbert Hopp, married again, this time to a man named Oliver Saar. They had three children and settled in Indianapolis, Indiana. Gerda was widowed again when Oliver died in August of 1981. She then lived to 81 herself when she passed in March of 1999. The repercussions from the Herbert Hopp story seemingly continued into August of 1945 when citizenship was denied for Herman Stuckman, age 60, a janitor and father of Gerda Stuckman Melinda Hop's Hopp's former fiancé. Immigration Department attorney Dewey G. Hutchinson challenged the elder Stuckman's devotion to American principles. Even the newspaper article mentioned that Herman's daughter, Gerda, was once the fiancée of Herbert Haupt, quote, who was executed as a Nazi spy three years ago, end quote. Uh, This part is for my new friend, Lila. Stukman lived at 1750 West Albion Avenue in Rogers Park, about a half mile from Sullivan High School, where I believe you attended high school. Uh, I can find no record of Herman Stuckman ever becoming a U.S. citizen. In a 1958 New York Daily News story titled, Traitor with a Country, the German the U.S. Wants to Forget, George Dash, the spy who turned on the others, was described as living a haunted, furtive life in West Germany. Quote, despised by countrymen as Judas, who betrayed Nazi sabotage invasion of the U.S. and sent six of his countrymen to their deaths, end quote. According to the article, Dash moved from town to town under different aliases, and when his true name was discovered, he would pick up and move on. Even well into his 80s, Dash talked about returning to America and insisted that he always intended to thwart the efforts of the saboteurs. John Cullen, the Coast Guardsman who first discovered the group of Germans on Long Island, lived to be 90 years old, passing away in 2011. Just before his death in 1972, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, listed among the 10 most shining moments during his 48 years leading the agency, was the 1942 capture of the eight Nazi saboteurs. Even then, 30 years after the capture he refused to concede that the main reason the FBI was able to break up the ring of saboteurs before any damage occurred was due to George Dash confessing early on. Herbert Haupt and his five other saboteurs were buried in the District of Columbia's Potter's Field. His grave was only identified by a wooden marker with the number 278 on it until 1982, when a German-American organization arranged to have a tombstone placed on the site to mark the graves of the six agents hastily executed 40 years before. According to the fbi.gov website, quote, although many allegations of sabotage were investigated by the FBI during World War II, not one instance was found of enemy-inspired sabotage, and quote, certainly not one by a German kid from Chicago's North Side. For listening to today's episode about Herbert Hopp, Chicago's Nazi spy. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll have plenty of pictures and items related to the events discussed in this episode on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages throughout the coming week. As well as links to books and such. If you'd like to learn more, anything purchased through those links, not just the items listed, may earn this page a small commission and help offset production costs. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on those social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you have time, please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend about it. It really does make a difference. I will be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.